This morning we get into a section of Revelation that is both difficult and heartbreaking, and yet we find ourselves here, so we're going to march through it. This morning's message is entitled, A Harvest of Wickedness. When Christ came in his first coming, he came not as the conquering king. He came not as the Lord God Almighty in his full glory and splendor, but as the Apostle Paul so eloquently wrote by the Spirit in Philippians 2, he emptied himself, laying aside his glory and his privilege, coming in the form as a man, coming in the form as a servant. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19 and verse 10, it says this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And it's in his first coming that Jesus often warned of the future coming when he would not come again as a humble servant, where he would not come again to seek and to save the lost, but where he would come as a conquering and victorious warrior, where he would come as a conquering king in righteousness to judge the wicked of the earth. Also known as the great day of the Lord. And it's of that day that Jesus often spoke. John the Baptist spoke as well in Matthew 3, 7, where he said to the Pharisees, Who warned you, brood of vipers, of the coming day of the Lord to flee his wrath? Oftentimes we've seen in the epistles with Paul in Romans, where he says that the great day of the Lord is coming to judge the wicked and their wickedness because of their refusal to bow the knee to Christ for their refusal to admit that they have a sin problem, for their refusal to relinquish the control in their lives and not worship idols or the creation or any other thing outside of God. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10 had this to say of the great day. Verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume his adversaries. The great day of the Lord is coming, and in this section of Revelation, we're going to see a preview of that. Again, Revelation is not written chronologically. So we're going to get a little sneak peek of something that's going to happen later, something that we have yet to get to. And yet the prophets of old often warned of the great and terrible day of the wrath of God. That God would in his perfect righteousness come and tread down sin. That he would tread the great wine presses of the wrath of God. And this is what we're looking at. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63. This idea of harvest, and it's kind of fitting what we read this morning, because this morning's reading was all about harvest, was it not? That in the land of Egypt, God ordained a famine to come. And in that famine, they would have seven great years of harvest. And then they would have seven years of nothing. Harvest is not a new idea. We live in a world where if we did not harvest food, we would not eat. Man has not synthetically made his own food and therefore still needs a harvest. Whether it's a harvest of fruit or a harvest of grains 
or a harvest of creatures for meat, or a harvest of eggs for protein. But we harvest all the time, and yet oftentimes we are ignorant of the process. How many kids nowadays think food comes from the grocery store? And they forget that it has to come from somewhere before it gets to the grocery store. But Isaiah chapter 63 talks about this great harvest of the Lord, the treading of the wrath of God, starting in verse 1. For who is this who comes from Edom with the garments of glowing colors from Bozrah, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? For I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also tread them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my arm went for my arm so my arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth Through the prophet Isaiah Christ was warning of the great and terrible day of his judgment where he would come and have a harvest and a trampling Turn to the book of Joel a small little book. It's right before the book of Amos. Joel, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. The great treading of the winepress of the wrath of God. And what is it full of? Wickedness. The ungodly. Those who hate the Lord and despise his coming. Those who turn a deaf ear and a blind heart to the gospel. Those who refuse to admit they have a sin problem. Those who refuse to acknowledge that there is a God who is above all and greater than all and we are accountable to him. Both Isaiah and Joel understood this. But what about the New Testament? Well, Jesus often spoke in the analogy of harvest. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Jesus spoke of a harvest oftentimes, but this was very poignant and very pointed. Matthew 13, starting in verse 30. And Jesus said, Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And the disciples were a bit confused on this point. What was he actually talking about? So he expounded on it further down in verse 39. 
And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christ talked often about harvest. Do you know there is also a prophet named Hosea? And Hosea also talked about the understanding of the process of a harvest. And I'm going to speak of that towards the end of our message this morning. But it's important for us to understand what is the condition of our hearts. Are we plowing with a view to righteousness? Are we sowing with a view to godliness? Are we reaping the blessings of spiritual fruit? Or are we dead? Are we barren? Are we unwatered? Well, how do we water? Well, Jesus says, water with the word. The word of God waters our spirits, gives us wisdom, gives us understanding, and helps us to walk faithfully before a holy God. Because his standard is absolute perfection. His standard is holiness. Why? Because he is holy. Every call that God makes in Scripture to be holy, he prefaces it with, because I am holy. God expects us to mirror his perfection. And how do we do that? Only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because there is nothing good in us. There is no holiness that we can produce. There is no righteousness that we can stand upon and say, I can stand here and verify and validate that I am righteous. When it comes to the great day of the Lord, when we go to stand before his throne, we can only stand on the plea of Christ's mercy, on the plea of the shed blood of Christ that washed us from our sin. That is the only hope that we have. That is why Christ is all and in all. Because he is the fulfillment of our righteousness because we had none. Which was the reason he had to die. But this morning we're going to look at two great harvests that happen in the book of Revelation. The first is the grain harvest. The second is the grape harvest. And this morning we're going to look at them in the context in which they were written. The grain harvest was speaking of the seven bold judgments that were yet to come. And we'll see the fulfillment of that in chapter 16. And the grape harvest, treading the winepress of the wrath of God, is speaking of the battle of Armageddon. We'll see how that ties together. And again, that'll be later in chapter 19 when we get there. But we'll touch on it this morning. Because it's important to understand the context of what is written for us here. If you're not there, go ahead and turn to chapter 14. We're going to finish the chapter 14 this morning. Chapter 14, starting in verse 14. 14, 14. Easy to remember, right? Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, 
and he also had a sharp sickle. And then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for the distance of 200 miles. Let's pray this morning before we get into his word and ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity to come before you as your gathered people, the people who are called affectionately by the name of your church as the bride of Christ. And Father, it is a title that we neither deserve nor have we earned, but it is only because of the precious blood of Christ that we stand here this morning washed and renewed that we can come here and worship without fear of your judgment, without fear of your great wrath. For great is your wrath in the coming day of your judgment. And Father, we thank you that we can stand here this morning without fear of that, because Christ took the penalty that we could never repay. He took the penalty of our sin and he endured it upon the cross. And he cried out that it was finished. And because it was finished, Lord, we can stand before you this morning and worship you with gladness, with joy, and with much gratitude. Lord, we ask that as we get into your word, that as your word can be oftentimes difficult to understand, we just ask for your wisdom and understanding this morning. That we would be wise in your word. And that, Lord, you would continue to renew and to sharpen us more into the image of your beloved Son. Father, we ask that as you gave Joseph understanding into the dreams of Pharaoh, that you would give us understanding into the visions that John had here. And Father, that you would lead and guide us in a way that we would be pleasing in your sight. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus for your great and eternal glory. Amen. The great harvest of wickedness. We've gotten to a point in Revelation where we've seen a lot of judgment. We've seen a lot of destruction on the earth. And yet, the worst is yet to come. The great grain harvest is what we're going to look at in verses 14 through 16 this morning. And it begs the question of three things. First, who is being reaped? Second, how is the ripeness? And third, how is the earth harvested? And these are great questions to look at because it gives us insight not only into our lives, but into the plan of God. But it also gives us insight into the brokenheartedness we should have for a world that continues to reject a Savior. For those around us, as we were reminded with this tragedy in our own community, that many people continue to spit in the face of God and can refuse to bow the knee to Christ. And they're hostile towards that. And yet we bear no less responsibility to preach the good news of the gospel. Because in the end, all man is without excuse. No man can come before God and say, I did not know. 
And at the same time, can we stand before God in the end of days and say, Lord, I preach faithfully the good news of the gospel? Because that is our responsibility. It is not the responsibility of everybody else to do the job that God has called each of us to do. Every one of us are to be messengers of the gospel. The gospel means good news. And there's only one thing that is good news, that we can flee this coming judgment and harvest of the wicked. That we do not have to stand there and endure the wrath of God. Because it has already been accepted in the person and blood of Jesus Christ. That when he comes again, not as a babe in the manger, but as a warrior and a king, we do not need to fear his second coming. But we can rejoice and be glad. But many will not. Many will fear the judgment and the wrath of the Lamb. Because great and terrible is the wrath of God. Something that scripture describes as utterly terrible. And yet it's perfectly righteous and holy. So this morning, let's look at our three questions. In verse 14, we're going to look at that this morning. And we're going to look at who is it that reaps. And the word says, and then I looked and behold, again, John uses that phrase over and over in Revelation to describe a new vision and something that we need to pay attention to. And he says, behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. It's reminiscent. And it's interesting here because the son of man was a title that was one of Jesus's favorite in the gospels. It's actually the most used title to describe Christ was the son of man. And instead of saying the imperative word of the Son of Man, John, for some reason, uses a Son of Man. Why? Well, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. It'll explain a little bit more. Daniel chapter 7 has the same verbiage, not only of a Son of Man, but also of the importance of the cloud. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says this, And I kept looking in the visions of the night, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." So obviously here we're looking at Christ. It is Christ who is coming. It is Christ who is going to do the reaping of the grain harvest. But what about the cloud? Well, the cloud just speaks of his splendor and his glory. We see that oftentimes in the book of Matthew, chapter 17 and verse 5. Chapter 24, verse 30. Chapter 26, verse 64. Also, Acts 1.9, speaking of when Christ went back up into heaven, he was clothed with a cloud. It's just speaking of the glory of Christ. Jesus is described in Revelation only twice as the Son of Man. Once in chapter 1 and verse 13, and then the other one is here. And no more will it be sp- he be spoken of in that manner. But the first time that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man was in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 8 and verse 20 where he states that the Son of Man came having nothing, not even a place, to lay his head. 
It described the great disparity that Christ had and the great poverty Christ had when he came to earth, when he set aside his glorious right to rule and reign as the sovereign God of the universe and set that aside, stripped him of his glory and came as a baby. He came as a man in the likeness of men. That was his first coming. And his second coming will be vastly different. His second coming will be terrifying to those who refuse to bow the knee to the authority of God. He will come as a warrior, victorious and mighty. He will come in his own glory, the glory that he set aside the first time. But he will also not come to seek and to save the lost. His second coming will be to come in judgment. His second coming will not be to seek and save the lost, but to destroy the wicked from the earth. To make a last harvest. To enact judgment on an unbelieving world. But yet it also describes him here as sitting on the cloud. Now why is he sitting? Well, we know in the book of Hebrews that it says when he ascended into heaven after his resurrection that he sat down at the right hand of power. Why? Because his work was finished. His work was completed. There was nothing left in redemptive history to do. When God said, when Christ said on the cross it is finished, it was done. He had nothing else to do to accomplish salvation for those who could not get it for themselves. And yet we see that in his second coming here, that he is coming with the clouds, he is sitting upon the cloud. Why? Because he is waiting for the command of the Father to reap a harvest. Because Christ, even in his earthly ministry, he said, It is not I that know, but the Father alone knows the time. And he is waiting for the command to come to set forth his sickle and to reap. The Father knows, and he will make known to the Son the proper time. It's biblical. And it's not because Christ is not all-knowing, it's because he has chosen to set aside that for the privilege of the Father alone. Why? I don't know. But the scripture says it, and that's good enough. But it also describes him as having a golden crown. Now we would always think of Christ as having the great crown called Stephanos. No, sorry, diadema, which means a kingly crown. But actually it's here the victor's crown, the Stephanos crown. It is picturing him as coming as a great and victorious warrior. It gives us the imagery of the purpose of Christ's second coming to the earth. We know that the church is raptured up. He doesn't set foot on the earth, but we know that in his second coming, he's going to set foot on the earth again. And he's going to rule and to reign physically on the earth. But in his second coming, he is also coming to judge the nations of their wickedness. He is coming to judge Antichrist and the false prophet and the followers of Satan. And we know that because the scripture tells us so. But he comes here as a victorious warrior. He shows that he will have complete victory over his enemies. There is none who can stand against the holy God. There is none that can stand against Christ. But he had a golden crown upon his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. How many of you guys know what a sickle is? Oh, not bad. Yeah, we actually have like three or four of them in our barn. But yeah, it was a long, sharp instrument with a wooden handle where your hands were spaced out. 
and you can go back and forth, and it actually would cut. Most of the time it was used in wheat harvest. It would cut the grain down at ground level. Now, there are some Amish, the old order Amish, that still do that. It's a very, very physically demanding way to harvest your crops. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. But this is just showing us that Christ will come and he will mow down all his enemies. The harvest will be complete. He will put in his sickle and he will harvest the harvest. But it's interesting here, because we're going to look at our second point, and it's how ripe is the harvest. Verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now that word ripe in the Greek, there's actually two different words in the Greek for the word ripe. And actually, this passage before us this morning has both of them. This first one means dried up, withered, overripe, no longer useful for harvest. It is overripe. Oftentimes, our English tends to negate the actual understanding of a word. That's why English is very difficult to understand. Because as we translate it in our Bibles here, ripe, we think, oh, it's time, it's ready, it's good. This actually use of the word ripe in the Greek means it's no longer good, it's worthless. It is overripe, it is past due, it is time to be put away. How many of us feel that sin has gone past and is overdue to be harvested? Yeah. We get very tired of it. We get tired of the sin in this world that continues to hammer down and continues to show itself as rotten and despicable, and profane. And it gets wearisome. But there is a day where that will outlive its ripeness. And Christ will harvest the earth. It's past its point of usefulness. Turn to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 40. Matthew 13 and verse 40. Jesus explains this to his disciples, and he says, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Again, the tares among the wheat were worthless. Tares imitated the wheat, and yet there is no value to them. So shall the reaping of the wicked be. And yet this verse here also tells us that there is another angel that comes out. This is the fourth angel mentioned in this chapter. The first three brought messages of the coming judgment. Remember back in the beginning of chapter 14, we had the three angels flying in mid-heaven giving out the proclamation. That judgment is coming. This fourth angel now enacts that judgment. God is not going to withhold judgment any longer, but he's going to call forth judgment. This fourth angel reveals now that it is the Father's time for judgment to be carried out. It is time for Christ, the righteous one, to execute this judgment in holiness and righteousness. That Christ has long held the title deed to the earth. He's also held the responsibility to judge the earth in righteousness. He is the one whom God has appointed to act as judge. And he alone is worthy. And we see that when God says, put forth your sickle and reap a harvest. Man has finally run out of time. 
Man no longer has time to repent when Christ comes to harvest the wicked. Man will be judged for his sin and held to account for what he has done with the Son of God. Make no mistake, that is the greatest thing that we have a responsibility for is what we do with Christ. How we handle the knowledge of who Jesus is. And the scripture tells us we are all without excuse because God has made himself known. Whether it's through your reading of his word, whether it's through his image and creation, God has held every one of us accountable. And at this time, man will be held accountable for what he has done with Christ. Then we reach in verse 16, how the earth is harvested. And there comes the great dichotomy of our faith. The great two-sided coin. On one side, we rejoice that God is finally enacting judgment and holding sin accountable and doing away with it. But at the same time, it should bring a brokenness to our heart that so many will be judged and found guilty of the blood and body of Christ. God will not always strive with man forever. He stated that back in the book of Deuteronomy. God will not always wrestle with the wickedness of man. And we reach that tipping point in the book of Revelation as we are now gearing up for the great and terrible harvest to come in the seven bold judgments that God has. Because we know the seven bold judgments are the final outpouring of God's wrath. And we know that at the seventh bold judgment that Christ comes again. It is in the judging of the earth and the judging of those who follow Antichrist and who lust after sin and destruction and wickedness and vileness. It is at the end of this that God will pour out his wrath and man will be held accountable. It's one of the saddest realities of scripture that the depravity of man keeps him from repentance. That man's own sin continues to blind him to the greatness of God and ultimately carries him into judgment without mercy. Right now we live in a time of grace. Scripture is very clear in that. A time of grace because we have an opportunity to repent. We have an opportunity to preach the gospel. We have an opportunity to share the love of Christ by the power of his spirit. But at this time, it will be no more. God will do away with his grace, and he will enact judgment. So how is the earth reaped? Let's look at the seven bold judgments quickly. They're described in chapter 16, and we'll get there in more depth. But I'm just going to list them out for you. First, there was the the first bold judgment. It was loathsome and malignant sores upon those who followed Antichrist. The second bold judgment was a death of all life in all the oceans of the world. The third, all rivers and springs of water were turned to blood. There will be no more potable water. There will be no more water to drink. Fourth, the sun's scorching heat will burn man. Fifth, painful and utter complete darkness in the kingdom of Antichrist. Sixth, the drying up of the great river Euphrates to make way for that great and final battle, the battle of Armageddon. And seventh, there is to be the most powerful and destructive earthquake ever recorded in history and ever to stand. 
So what follows the grain harvest? We have the grape harvest, verses 17 through 20. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. And he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. So now we've turned to the second harvest recorded for us. And the grape harvest is the great battle of Armageddon. And we'll get to why that's indicative here. But let's look at our same three questions. Who is the one who reaps? This one is not Christ. Christ is not the one who reaps, but he is the one who troddens. How do we know that? Because it says here for us, And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. This fifth angel that we see in this passage had a sharp sickle like the Lord Jesus, but he was not Christ. Should we be surprised? No. Oftentimes we have seen, not only in the book of Revelation, but also throughout the history of God's redemptive history in the Bible, that God has used angels to enact judgment. That God has used angels to carry out his wrath on mankind. So we shouldn't be surprised that God is using angels here. Jesus promised that he would come in judgment with the help of his holy angels. And yet we also see that he has come out of the heavenly temple. From the presence of the Father. This angel has authority from the Father to enact this judgment. He is not acting in his own power and in his own idea, but he's acting under the direct ordination of God the Father. Angels have continued to be very active in all ages with judgments and preaching the word, and so it will be here at the end of days. Again, Matthew 13, 39, and 49 talk about the, Jesus saying that he will come to enact judgment with the help of his holy angels. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 also talks about Christ using angels in the final judgment. But here we also see that the grape harvest was ripe. Again, I'm going to point that word out. We learned in the grain harvest that word ripe was overripe, rotten, good for nothing. But here that word ripe is used in a different way. It is fully ripe and in its prime. So God, as he is already enacted his seven bold judgments and he has come back to the earth we now know that antichrist will gather all the armies of the world to come and to try to destroy jerusalem and destroy christ's reign and the battle of armageddon takes place john MacArthur had this to say this word ripe it pictures earth's wicked unregenerate people as bursting forth with the juice of wickedness and that they show that they are ready for a harvest of righteousness. Wickedness has now come to its full and ripe potential. That as the wicked men of the earth come to seek to destroy that which God promised, that Jerusalem would stand and that Christ would reign in Jerusalem physically, they have come to seek to destroy that, to put forth the agenda of Satan, But what happens? 
Well, we have a sixth angel to look at. This is the angel that is said that he has power over fire who comes out of the altar. And we've seen a picture of the altar, and we've seen a picture of an angel that has power over the altar's fire in Revelation already. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. We're going to look at that this morning because it's good for us to continue to refresh what we've seen. This is the fifth seal of the martyrs. And when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they have maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would also be completed. So we see the answer to this, that it is time now for God to not refrain from judging the earth, from judging the wicked, for judging the wicked for the blood of the saints. And it's underneath the altar, the altar of incense, which is the heavenly picture of the one that was on earth in the days of the old covenant. Turn over to chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. And another angel came out and stood at the altar, again the incense altar, holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints, on the golden altar which is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. And then the angel took the censer, and he filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it upon the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. It's a beautiful picture because here we see that there is a mirror of what God ordained on earth. We know that God gave Moses an idea and an understanding of the tabernacle and how it was to be laid out and how it was to be built and how the priests were to enact worship in God's house. God mirrors this. Because we know that everything here on earth is a mirror and a reflection of the way that it is in heaven. God has been very poignant about that in Scripture. Turn back to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, verses 7 and 8. So there was a morning and an evening incense offering. Verse 7 and 8, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Speaking of the altar that is in front of the veil of the Ark of the Testimony. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Now go to the book of Luke, chapter 1. This is what the people's responsibility was when it was time for the incense uh, offering. Luke chapter 1 and verse 10. Luke chapter 1 and verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. God's people were commanded at the morning and the evening offering of incense, they were to pray. They were to pray to the Lord and offer worship through prayer and thanksgiving and petition. Do you know that we've been commanded no less in Scripture to come before the Lord with thanksgiving through prayer and petition, but always with giving thanks? Well, they were to do the same. And the incense that was burned on the incense offering was to symbolize the prayers of the people going up to the Lord. 
And it's in this picture that we see now that God is going to fulfill the prayers of his people to judge sin and wickedness and to do away with it. So we see the answer of how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging the earth? At the end of the bold judgments, Jesus will come and establish his kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and holiness where peace will reign on the earth. There are passages in Isaiah and elsewhere in Scripture that talks about that time of the millennial kingdom. That man who dies before a hundred will be considered a babe. Where children can play with serpents and not be frightened. Where the lion and the lamb will lay together. But how are the grapes harvested here? It's very pictorial language here, but it's very poignant. God is going to judge it in great wrath. Verses 19 and 20. So because her grapes were ripe, this is what happens. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth, and he gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now winepresses back in this day and time were twofold. You had an upper vat or an upper basin that held the fresh grapes that were harvested. And it was connected by a trough to a lower basin. So as the people were up there and stomping and tromping down the grapes, great imagery, isn't it? Remember that song, March in the Infantry? Same idea. They were marching upon the grapes. They were stomping them down to get the juice without all the extra. So there was a screen at the bottom of that so that all the pulp and the seeds wouldn't go down. But then the grape juice was able to flow freely into the next trough through the trough to the next basin. And this is how they harvested grapes. And this is how they harvested their wine. Puts in great imagery of what Christ says he's going to do when he comes and he trods the great wine press of the wrath of God. They were gathered and they were put into the press. And it shows that Christ will trod in the wicked. That scripture we read in Isaiah 63 was very specific. That as Christ troddens and tramples the wicked underfoot, that blood will flow freely. Here we see the same thing in verse 20. And the winepress was trodden, but outside the city. Again, God knows how to protect what is his. The city of Jerusalem will not be touched. That as the great Euphrates River is dried up, the armies will come. And they will seek to make war upon Jerusalem, and yet they will not be able to. It will be north of Jerusalem about 60 miles in the plain of Esdarelon, which is near Mount Megiddo. It will spread and rage as far as the whole length of Israel, as far south of the city of Bozrah, which is actually in the land of Edom. Which we also get that out of Isaiah 63. It will be a great and terrible war, and millions of people will be trodden underfoot. But yet the scripture tells us it's not going to really be a battle. Why? Because Christ and Christ alone wages that war and there is no victory on their side. It will be a slaughter and not a a battle. It pictures the trotting of the wicked and their blood being required of them. Why? Because our blood is on our heads, right? You guys remember when Christ was standing before Pilate and before all of Israel? And what did the, what did the high priest say? His blood be upon us and upon our children. 
Do you know that that is what all of us are required to do? To take responsibility for the blood of Christ. Do we take it and do we become covered in it? And do we find sanctification and salvation through the blood of Christ? Or do we say, let it be upon us and upon our children, we're not worried about it. That is the great responsibility of man. To be responsible for the blood of Christ. Whether to be pured and cleansed and made holy. Or whether to be held accountable for the blood of Christ and his crucifixion. Those are the only two choices of the cross. We are either made righteous and Christ's blood was held accountable for our sin or we're being held accountable for crucifying Christ without excuse. Scripture tells us that God promises that his great wrath will be tread and it will be satisfied. Again, it will be great. You guys know that the approximate height of a horse's bridle is four feet? Just the average height. Four feet by 200 miles is what the scripture here says. That is a great and terrible slaughter. Yet it's hyperbole just in the sense of that the amount of slaughter is not necessarily going to be an actual four foot by 200 miles, but it's saying that the slaughter will be so great of the millions of the wicked that are trodden in the winepress of God that blood will flow freely through riverbeds and streams. It will be great, and it will be terrible. And yet it's always Christ whose robes are dipped in blood because Christ is the only one who has the authority to judge the wicked. Take that into account in our own lives. We have the responsibility to warn. We have the responsibility to love. We have the responsibility to teach. We do not have the responsibility to judge the unrighteous. Only Christ has the responsibility, the authority, and the right to judge the wicked for their sins. Therefore, we ought to love the sinner and hate the sin. As Jude said, to snatch them from the fire and yet hate the garments polluted by flesh. Because we are to stick away and to be set aside from sin unto holiness and righteousness. And yet we are to go after those who are clothed in sin and unrighteousness. There's a great dichotomy there. To get dirty to love the sinner and yet to not get polluted by that dirt. It's not easy. And you can't do it on your own. That's why we have the church to uplift, to encourage, to walk alongside, to bear one another's burdens, no matter the cost, to love one another well, and to help each other walk in holiness. Now this is where the church falters. The church often looks at it as, since we do not have the authority to judge, we ought not to judge anybody. That is not the truth of the word of God. God says, judge rightly amongst the church. Deal with sin in the church. But stop holding accountable unrighteous people who do not understand the gospel for their sin. Help them to see that they have a problem with sin, but you are not to judge them in their sin. You are to love them well and bring them the gospel. And God will deal with their sin in their heart. You and I cannot deal with people's hearts. Only God's spirit can change the heart of man to love him. It is our responsibility to bring that truth and that alone. 
The battle of Armageddon is described for us in chapter 19. Go ahead and turn there. Chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Or, actually, we'll go through 21. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, you guys catch that? Christ's robe was white but dipped in blood. The armies of heaven that followed along were clean, unstained, and white alone. It is Christ who enacts judgment. It is Christ who wages war against the ungodly, not us. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God. This is the great buzzard feast. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Again, looking at the harvest of grapes and the treading of the great winepress of the wrath of God, this is the description of that battle. This is the description and the imagery to show us that it is not we who fight, but God will fight on our behalf. Do we rest in that knowledge? These two sections show us that it is Christ who wages the war and wins. It is Christ who is victorious. Yes, an angel cuts and gathers the grapes, but it is our Lord who crushes them beneath his righteous feet beneath the terrifying wrath and holy justice of God. Hebrews 10.31 says this, and it's something that we ought to listen to. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Psalm 2 is a great psalm. There's a lot of uh, sarcasm, a lot of snark from God, which is great. It's actually kind of funny. But in Psalm 2 and verse 12, he says this, Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry with you, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, but how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. God's wrath is coming. It is sure. It is firm. It has been made known to all mankind. 
So how about us? How about our day and age now? How does this apply to us? We don't have to fight. But what is our responsibility? How does this apply and equip us for how we are to live? Because everything we read in God's word is for a purpose. To grow us in holiness and righteousness into the image of his beloved son. And to also equip us to know how to preach the word. Turn to the book of Hosea. There are two verses in the book of Hosea. I'm actually toying with preaching through the book of Hosea next. Not sure if I'm going to yet or not. But in the book of Hosea, Hosea deals with the sin of Ephraim and the sin of Israel. And over and over again, God is lamenting the fact that Israel continues to wander away. Israel continues to play the harlot. Israel continues to seek after the nations of the world. And in chapter 10, the prophet Hosea says this through the inspiration of God. Verse 12. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness upon you. But you have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way in your numerous warriors. Where do we place our trust? Do we break up the fallow ground of our hearts? Fallow ground is ground that is hard. You guys live in Claybanks Township. You know hard ground. It's exactly what it's talking about. The hard ground that is not worked. The hard ground that is set aside. And every one of us still has hardened ground in our hearts. And we will until Christ comes. Are we actively breaking up that fallow ground? Are we making it useful so that it can be sown with the seed of righteousness? So that we can reap kindness and the benefits of the fruit of the Spirit? So that we can love the lost well. That is our responsibility. To be active in the word of God and in prayer to break up our fallow ground. Don't know where your fallow ground is? Ask. God will most certainly point it out. Secondly, Ezekiel's charge to speak God's word of warning, judgment, grace, and mercy, and salvation or their blood will be held upon you. God over and over told Ezekiel, if you withhold your tongue from speaking my word, I will hold their blood accountable on your head. Do we withhold the righteousness and the glory and the beauty of Christ and his sacrifice for sin? Or do we make it known? Yes. Do we often fail because of fear? Yes. But we should do it less as we grow. Why? Because you know what? The world isn't rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. They're not rejecting you personally. They're rejecting the word of God that makes them uncomfortable. And they're rejecting the fact that they have a sin problem because they don't want to acknowledge it. And many of us were there. All of us were there, but at different stages of life. Some of us may not remember that stage. But all of us, no less, rejected the word of God that we were sinners lost in sin and could do nothing to save ourselves. Matthew 28, Jesus gave that commandment, Go forth into all nations, baptizing, preaching the word, making, God, making disciples, 
Are we doing that? Are we going about the Lord's work? Or do we look at our own lives and go about the work that we desire to do? Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. It says, you will be my witnesses. Do you know that word witness is actually translated martyr? It's not saying all of us will be martyred, but we all have the potential of that. Are you willing to sacrifice your life for the gospel? If not, why not? Because if you're not willing to sacrifice your life for the gospel, are you truly in the faith? It is God who has the right to require our life of us, not we ourselves. Will we be faithful to that calling? And you know what? Those who are in Christ can say yes. Might terrify you, and that's okay. But perfect love drives out all fear. The love of God, knowing that if God calls you to that, it is according to his purpose, for his glory, and for your good. God will use it in a mighty way. Do we trust him? Again, this is a difficult portion of scripture because it shows us that God is holy and he will deal with wickedness. Let's make sure we deal with that in our hearts and we make sure we proclaim the good news of the gospel to those who don't have it. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Even the heavy truths of your word, that there will be many who are lost and stay lost. That there will be many who run after Satan and his ways. But Lord, that you are faithful and true. That you are the word of God. Your word tells us that in the beginning was the word. And the word was God and the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. And in Colossians that all things were made through him and nothing was made that was not made through him. And in the great glorious portion of verse 12 in chapter 1 of Colossians where we have been transferred out of a domain of darkness into the blessed kingdom of your beloved son. Father, may we live victorious lives in Christ for your glory. And Lord, as tragedy has stuck struck close in our community with Ray and Troy and the plane crash, Lord, may we continue to be faithful to spread the news of the gospel. And even if people reject it, may we take heart knowing that they reject you and not ourselves so we can therefore go forward in boldness and continue to proclaim the gospel and the truth. Father, may you continue to change us more into the image of your beloved Son that we may be pleasing in your sight that we may be faithful to the end and in all ways that you call us. May we be faithful to our calling. And Father, we just ask that you would be glorified today, that your name would be honored, and that we would continue to praise you for you are holy and worthy of all the glory that we can give. Through the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.